Good to see you guys. God bless you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2? Now, as we have said numerous times, Peter ends chapter 1 of his second epistle by talking about the true prophets of God and how the Holy Spirit inspired their words, words that were then written down and provided the rest of us with the light of God's truth, the inspired word of God. As he moves into the second chapter, Peter proceeds to talk about false prophets, false teachers who pervert God's word. So the first group is faithful. They faithfully proclaim the word of God. And of course, the devil always comes in with the tares. And uh, these are false brethren that he sows into a congregation. And Peter talks about these uh, people. Uh, these are those who pervert God's word by teaching destructive heresies, which, have which if embraced, will damn a person to hell. He, uh, he ends verse 3 of chapter 2 with the words, But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction or their judgment will not be delayed. Now, after he makes a few comments, he gets into verse 9, which we kind of left uh, at last time, but let me just read it where Peter goes, and, and the subject is God is going to judge these false teachers, okay, who teach these lies. He said, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. If you weren't here, you want to go online and listen to that because there's a lot there that Christians need to know. And especially now he's talking about the day of punishment, the day of judgment, awaiting some who are false teachers, and so on. He says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of, evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So he says, who walk these False teachers, that's really the, the subject. Of course, it could apply to anybody in the church. Um, there are many who call themselves Christians in the church who walk according to the flesh. But he's singling out those who are uh, false teachers right now. He says, who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Of course, the flesh refers to the fallen nature of man. To walk according to the flesh means to live for the lusts of the flesh. In other words, guys, it means or it describes a life that is being controlled, dominated by the fallen nature. Now, this is it, this is directly opposite to how a child of God is commanded to walk. Unbelievers walk according to the flesh, but we as Christians, Paul said in Galatians five seventeen, he said, "I say we Christians must walk in the Spirit." And if you do, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The word walk uh, is uh, the Greek word peripateo, and it is in the present imperative, which means that Paul is commanding us, listen, to keep on walking in the Spirit every day. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just on Wednesday evenings. We are to walk in the Spirit every single day. Because every day we want to honor God, every day we want to glorify Him, and every day we are in a battle because He does talk about that. Uh, so if you want to, you know, the best defense against the flesh and the enemy is a good strong offense. What does it mean to walk 
in the Spirit. Well, three things quickly. It means that the Holy Spirit lives in you, first of all, that you're saved. Okay? Yeah, walk in the Spirit if you're not saved. That's obvious, but we have to state it. Okay? So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? First of all, it means the Holy Spirit lives inside of you that you're a believer. Number two, it means to be surrendered and obedient to what the Spirit has revealed to you in His Word as to the will of God for your life. That's why it's so important to know God's Word. That's why it's so important. You can't walk in the Spirit if you're not in the Word, all right? Because the Word is what directs our path. It directs our steps, okay? And so again, it means to be surrendered and obedient to what the Spirit has revealed in His Word as to the will of God for our lives. And number three, and these are just basic, it means to be open and sensitive to the influence and leading of the Holy Spirit in your daily life. So as you're going through your day, to walk in the Spirit means that at any time when the Spirit of God is wants to redirect you, you understand that, look, He's got something He wants you to do, maybe someone to talk to. Be open, be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We get so locked, and I'm probably worse than anyone here for this. We get so locked into our schedules. You know, if you're a, if you're a, a um, checklist kind of a person, you know, uh, which that's my day. I want to check things off. I want to get things done. Sometimes we get so locked into that that we're not really open to the Spirit leading us. Or if we feel His tug in a certain direction, we kind of, nah, that's not the Lord. You know, we just kind of go about our business. I'm convinced, I know personally, I've probably missed many opportunities to be used by God simply because I was too rigid in my, uh, in my daily walk with my schedule and things, right? Now, if you walk in the Spirit, Paul said, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, this is in contrast, as he goes on in Galatians 5, to describe what a life that walks according to the flesh looks like. Why don't you turn there, since we're in Galatians. Galatians 5. I'm sure we have read this several times already in the course of our studies in First and Second Peter, but... You know, you walk in the Spirit, you're going to live for God, obey God, you're going to glorify God, you're going to stay away from places and people that can bring you down and so on, right? It's a, it's a great way to live your life. It's an offensive way to live your life in the sense that you're, you are not living in, in, you know, where, the, where you're reacting to the flesh. You are walking in the Spirit. But those people who do walk according to the flesh, Paul lists what characterizes their lives he calls them the works of the flesh they're evident in these people's lives which are adultery fornication uncleanness lewdness idolatry sorcery hatred contentions jealousies outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions dissensions heresies envy murders drunkenness revelries and the like i get the impression he could have gone on for a lot longer of which i tell you beforehand just as I told you in time past that those who, listen, practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the key word is practice. These are not individual sins because Christians can commit any one of these and be forgiven. He's talking about the fruit of a fallen life. These, these are the characteristics of a fallen nature dominating of someone who is unsaved, okay? And that's the idea. When you see the word practice, it means live 
habitually. John said in his first epistle, I believe chapter 3, children of God cannot live habitually in sin. They can certainly commit sins, even some pretty serious sins. David, a man after God's own heart, committed murder and adultery. Those are some of the most serious sins a person can commit and God still forgave him. Now, I'm not minimizing that, of course. I'm just saying there's forgiveness. Christians can fall into any one of these sins. But when a person practices these things, it indicates this is the result of a person who doesn't know the Lord. He's, he's not or she's not born again. Because if they were, the Spirit of God would be in there, and there would be a great deal of conviction taking place in their hearts, right? You know how it is now that you've gotten saved? You know how it is when you start walking away from the Lord, getting into the old sins, right? You're miserable. Well, David did that, was miserable. Read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, uh, which were written by David uh, after he repented of his sin with Bathsheba and so on. But he talked about, in Psalm 32 especially, uh, the year he was out of fellowship and how miserable he was. I mean, that's, you know, that's good. If we're going to get back into the same, some of the old sins, we shouldn't be happy. The Spirit of God is not going to let us be happy. He's going to make us miserable because he loves us and wants us to come back, right? Now, Peter doesn't itemize the kind of sins uh, that a, a life control by the flesh produces, as Paul did in Galatians 5, but simply acknowledges, Peter does, that these people walk, verse 10, in the lust of uncleanness. The word uncleanness is a Greek word that means defilements. These people walk in the lust of defilements. In other words, their whole lives are all about pursuing what is defiled. What is defiled? And of course, that would mean anything that's contrary to God, His nature, His word, and so on. J. Vernon McGee, one of my favorite uh, commentators, just a good old boy from the South. I love how he weaves in there some of those uh, homespun kind of uh, observations and things. But he said, this is a picture. These people who walk in uncleanness and defilements. This is a picture of those who are really lower than animals. They are those who delight in that which is vulgar, vile, and vicious. They relish that type of thing, end quote. Well, we don't see any of those folks around too much in our culture today, right? Like it was turned on the TV. Uh, this is what people call entertainment today, all right? Another one of my favorite commentators, William McDonald, said, and I quote, It is no secret that false religious leaders posing as ministers of Christ are often characterized by low moral standards. They, uh, they not only indulge in illicit sexual activities themselves, but they openly advocate libertinism. The Episcopal Chapel of a girls' school in Baltimore, Maryland wrote, this is this person writing, we all ought to relax and stop feeling guilty about our sexual activities, thoughts, and desires. And I mean this, whether those thoughts are heterosexual, homosexual, or autosexual, sex is fun. And this means that there are no laws attached which you ought to do or not do. There are no rules of the game, so to speak, end quote. Well, that's spoken like a true reprobate and rebel. A true reprobate and rebel. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the what? Heart the mouth speaks. And that brings us really to the second thing. Understand that fallen, the fallen nature 
which many walk in, but understand that the fallen nature of man is not only morally corrupt, it's rebellious. It's rebellious. And because it's rebellious, those that walk according to the, to the flesh hate anyone's authority over their life, listen, including and especially God's authority. You, you've seen in our culture, our culture is getting more and more rebellious. Uh, people are, are more and more rebellious against authority, uh, against the police. Uh, again, when I was a kid growing up, I mean, good heavens, uh, I was taught to really respect my teachers, uh, police officers. I mean, I wouldn't dare look at a police officer cross-eyed when I was a kid. I had such respect uh, for them. I'm not saying they're all good, and I've recently in some stories we have seen that there are bad cops, like bad pastors. Uh, but I believe the majority are good, and I believe the majority of men uh, in ministry are, are good-hearted too, as far as evangelical ministry. But we see this more and more as we are getting closer and closer to the Lord's return. We're seeing an escalation of rebellion towards authority. Well, this is really rooted in the fallen nature of man. It's, it's one of the core things. It's just that as our society was more Christian and influenced more by the Bible, a lot of people kept those desires in check. As we become more and more secularized and people have moved away from God more and more, you're seeing now the flesh beginning to rise up and dominate more and more. But, but this is nothing new. I mean, Peter's pointing out that, look, at, at the heart of the fallen nature is this rebellion. And those who walk according to the flesh, well, they hate anyone's authority over their lives, including and especially God's authority. Uh, you know, we, we, we see this rebellious fallen heart of man portrayed uh, in defiance against his creator. In uh, a poem that I've read to you uh, numerous times over the years, uh, it's pretty uh, famous, especially among rebels. Uh, Tim McVeigh embraced this poem before he was executed for his part in the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, he was also a rebel against, uh, against uh, government and so on. But uh, this is William Henley's classic uh, poem Invictus, which is the, 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 the motto, the uh, anthem of every rebel out there. He said, and I quote, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet... But the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. This is the classic line here. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Of course, that last part is a slam against Jesus. It says, straight is the way, narrow is the gate. That leads to life. Henley says, I don't care about straight gates. I don't care about eternal life. He said, I don't care how charged with punishments the scroll. Well, read Revelation 20. When they stand, people, unbelievers stand before God, and all their sins have been written down on a scroll and will be read to them. I don't care about uh, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm going to maintain my independence. I'm going to be the master of my fate. I'm going to be the captain of my soul. I wonder how Henley feels about these words right now. You know, it was um, 
Voltaire, the famous French atheist. Oh, he used to mock Christians. He was a very sharp guy, keen wit, and he would mock Christians unmercifully, you know. And, uh, you know, he was the one who said within 100 years of his death, uh, the New Testament would be eradicated from the face of the earth because people were getting more and more enlightened. And, of course, that's superstition, all that Bible stuff, right? I remember hearing about how he died. And um, he uh, was on his deathbed. He clutched his doctor's hand and said, I will give you half of my wealth if you'll give me another six months. Of course, the doctor couldn't do that. And then as he was dying, uh, he was screaming, more light, more light. The darkness was closing in. In fact, it was so horrible, his nurse came out of his bedroom, white as a sheet, vowing never again to attend the death of an atheist. Voltaire and Henley, I'm sure, are among some of those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth the most because they didn't have to go to, well, they're not in hell yet, they're in Hades, but eventually they will be in hell. They didn't have to endure that fate. Uh, their bravado, their pride, uh, rebellion, so prominent in life, now is going to haunt them for eternity. Now, Peter acknowledges this when he says, you know, the rebellion in the heart of fallen man. He acknowledges this when he says that these false teachers are defiled, immoral people who despise authority. In other words, they are notoriously rebellious, and even though they may give God lip service, a lot of uh, spiritual leaders in the church who give God lip service. However, they often replace him, don't they? Listen, they often replace him by setting themselves up as the divine authority in the lives of their followers. Every cult leader falls into that category, you know? They give God, Christian cult, they give God lip service, but really their followers worship the leader. That's what they want. That's what they want. It, it's not just Christian cults, though. It's false religions all over the world. You know, you've heard of the Dalai Lama, right? And a lot of people think the Dalai Lama is just this, you know, he's the kind of guy that, you know, you wish he was your uncle or your grandfather. He's so sweet and kind, you know, and just such a wonderful man, you know, and that's how he's portrayed, right, uh, in the world. But I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who's been to India numerous times, and he knows Christians over there, and they have told him that there are times when the Dalai Lama will enter into a stadium filled with his supporters, and they will lock the doors so nobody else can get in from the outside. Not making this up. And after he is locked into the stadium with all of his followers, at one point he will stand on the stage and defecate, and his followers run up to eat his human waste. If that is not an act of worship, I don't know what is. You know, Peter said of us who are Christian leaders, chapter one, First uh, Peter chapter five, verses one to three, he said, "We are not to lord it over God's people. We are to be the biggest servants in the body. We are shepherds. Shepherds are not like ranchers. Ranchers drive cattle from the rear." Shepherds lead the flock from in front by being an example. That, that's the difference between godly Christian leadership and what we see going on around us in various forms, in and outside the church. But Peter goes on to describe some of the characteristics of these false teachers when he says in verse 10, 
the latter part, they are presumptuous, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. The word presumptuous is a Greek word that means very daring and bold. Very daring and bold. And they are bold. I'll give them that. Self-willed is a word that means they live only to please themselves. And again, guys, pride and rebellion characterize these people. And again, I'm talking about false leaders, teachers, you know, those kind of folks. Outwardly, they appear to be men or women of God serving his people, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, as Jesus described them in Matthew 7, who prey upon God's flock, listen, to build their own egos and to line their own pockets. These people have to be in front. They have to be in the spotlight. They are egomaniacs. They are narcissists. Everything has got to be about them. They've got to be the hero of every story. They've got to be the focus of everybody in the church. But often then, not only are they looking to build their own egos, they're looking to line their own pockets, as Peter said, making merchandise of God's people. Peter says of these false teachers that they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. The word dignitaries literally means glorious ones. Glorious ones a term that could apply to earthly leaders in places of authority in human government. That's true. In fact, turn to Romans 13. Because if Peter does have earthly leaders in mind, governors, presidents, kings, and people in, a, in authority in human government, here's what, and I'll just read one passage, a couple of verses. There's many others we can look at. But here's what the Bible says we are, as in the name of godliness, how we are to look upon those in authority in human government. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Did you see that? Nobody is lifted up to a place of authority in human government, but what God doesn't ordain it. Now, that doesn't mean he is happy with all the people in leadership. And they will stand before him someday and give an account. But do you see what he's saying here? Nobody. Let's just use our country in, in the context of our, our nation. Nobody can be president of the United States, the most powerful country in the face of the earth, but what God doesn't appoint that person. Look, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I didn't vote for Barack Obama, and I disagreed with almost everything he did. But we still prayed for him every week on our Monday night men's prayer. I prayed for him all the time and his family uh, because I recognize that even though I may, have, may disagree with him on a lot of issues, I still respected him as my president. I never said at any time, he's not my president. Didn't say that. Because I knew that he was put in power by God. Just like I know that God put Donald Trump in power. You don't have to agree with him. You don't have to like him. But you need to pray for him. And you need to respect the office because God put this man in office. And time is going to tell, history will look back on this man's presidency in either a favorable light or a negative light. Time will tell. 
It's not for me to try to determine what history is going to record about this man 20 years from now. I'm only concerned about right now and that we need to pray for him, that God would give him wisdom, that God would uh, protect him, that God would watch over him, bring him and his family to Christ, which we pray for all the time. Now, Peter could have this in mind. Human authorities that serve in government positions, that we are to respect them and so on. However, Peter could have in mind spiritual authorities. Say, what do you mean? Well, let me read to you something, again, that J. Vernon McGee uh, said, and I quote. He quotes Peter about these who despise government. Many commentators say that this this reference to government here uh, is a reference to government here on earth. I have reason to believe since this word occurs so few times in the word of God that it really means dominion. The same word, kuriates, is translated dominion in verse 8 of Jude's uh, epistle and lordship in the first chapter of Ephesians. In Ephesians, it has to do with spiritual governments or spiritual authorities. In other words, they despise these rebels that Peter's talking about. They despise that which is spiritual, that which God has ordained above us, the angels, and the way God is running his universe. They are the ones who ask God to damn everything under the sun. They are not pleased with anything, end quote. And I kind of think Peter has that in view when he talks about these rebels who despise authority. I think that's the correct interpretation to ascribe this primarily, not that human government uh, folks, we should respect them, of course, but uh, when he's talking about the false teachers who speak evil of dignitaries, I think he's got uh, angelic or spiritual authority in mind because he moves right into verse 11 and says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, reason I think that Peter has got angelic hierarchy in, in view and ultimately God's authority in the heavens is because it sounds like Jude is parroting Peter. And when he said, you could turn there, you're in the neighborhood, Jude verse 8. In fact, around this chapter 2 of Second Peter, and then some of the things Jude says, it's almost like they were sitting at the same coffee table uh, writing their epistles together. Okay. Uh, but but it, what Peter said reminds me very much of what Jude said in Jude, starting with verse 8. He said, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, listen, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael said to Lucifer, I'm not going to argue with you about the body of Moses. I'm going to let the Lord rebuke you. Verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts and these things they corrupt themselves now guys listen what jude had in mind when he talked about michael the archangel contending with the devil over the body of moses we don't have time to get into and i fought it you know, a rabbit trail and i you know i'm just like i'm not gonna go there I'm just gonna derail the whole study all right but, but Jude's um, purpose in bringing up that incident, which raises more questions than it answers. 
He throws it out like we all know what he's talking about. And I'm thinking, wait, give us a little more, you know? But, all right. Um, but, but his whole purpose in bringing up that incident was to point uh, out how that godliness respects authority, the authority God has ordained. Listen, even if that authority becomes corrupt, as was the case of Lucifer. Now, you can read on your own Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 19. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15, it talks about Lucifer and how God created him as the top angel in heaven, the anointed cherub that covers. He was the top angel over all the other angels. He wasn't happy to be number two behind the Trinity. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be God. So he became, he fell, he, he got corrupted. And yet Michael the archangel still respected the office, even though it was now occupied by a fallen angelic creature who has caused all the trouble, basically, we see in the human race today, who caused heaven to be uh, corrupted by rebellion, yet Michael respected the office and said, Lucifer, you're above me, you were appointed above me, I'm not going to argue with you. If anyone's going to rebuke you, it's going to be the Lord. He respected the office. Uh, David demonstrated the same respect for God's anointed when he refused to kill King Saul, who was uh, at that time uh, pursuing David to kill him, right? And in both 1 Samuel chapter 24 and chapter 26, on two separate occasions, uh, David could have killed Saul, but refused to do so because he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. God wants to bring this guy down. He'll bring him down. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Later, Daniel demonstrated a respect for a despot king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a true despot. He was a uh, not a not a good guy. I mean, he you know he he just did whatever he wanted. Uh, if he wanted to kill you for whatever reason, he, he could do that back then, right? And yet Daniel found himself in Babylon through no fault of his own, taken there in the first captivity, first wave of captivity in 606 B.C. And Daniel was a godly young man, about maybe 17 at the time. He recognized that the only way he was in Babylon was because the Lord had ordained it, and the Lord had placed him under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, and so he served the king with all his heart. And when the king went mad for seven years because he... He refused to give God glory. He wanted to take credit for all that God had done in building Babylon. It was Daniel, tradition says, that Daniel took care of Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar, his sanity returned, he received the Lord, I believe. You can read Daniel chapter 4, which is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe has gotten saved. I think we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday. But Daniel respected the office. It doesn't mean he respected or agreed with everything Nebuchadnezzar did. He respected the office. And that's the, the point Jude is making, Peter is making. Yeah, Peter expressed the same respect for authority in his first epistle when he admonished his readers in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, fear God and what? Respect the king. Now that statement becomes very powerful when you realize that Caesar Nero was king of the Roman Empire at that time. Caesar Nero was not only despotic, he was insane. I mean, this was the guy 
that lit Rome on fire and fiddled, screaming and laughing and fiddled while the Rome burned. He was the guy that would take Christians and would uh, drive stakes through their bodies, cover them with pitch, and light them on fire to light his garden while he rode his chariot through these flaming bodies, screaming, and again, uh, just crazy mad. And Peter said, respect the king. Respect the office. Pray for your leaders. Because godliness respects the office that God has ordained. It's like a woman with a husband who is unsaved. And she's a Christian. And she is married to a man who doesn't act like a Christian because he's not a Christian. And so he's drinking and he's watching stuff that he shouldn't and so on. And she doesn't respect him. A godly woman respects the office. God has ordained that the man is the leader of the family. So pray for him. Peter said in his first epistle, chapter 3, if you live as a godly wife without even saying a word, there's an excellent chance you're going to win him to Christ. The Holy Spirit will work on him. But uh, respect the office. As we've already talked about in our prior studies in 2 Peter, all rebellion in the universe can be traced back to the first rebel, Lucifer. It all started in heaven before Genesis 3. Lucifer rejected God's authority over his life and, in fact, wanted to be God, as we've already said. He wanted to be God. In other words, he wanted to be um, the supreme authority in his own life. As the supreme rebel, he hated anyone else's authority, and he was the second guy in heaven, so the only one above him was the Trinity. He didn't want God to be above him. He didn't want to be under God's authority. And so as the, the quintessential and first rebel in the universe, he went ahead and led a revolt against God. A third of the angels, Revelation 12 tells us, followed him in his rebellion, and they all became fallen angels. And eventually, of course, Satan exported that rebellion to earth, Genesis chapter 3, and we've talked about that. Lucifer will eventually, though, attain the godlike status he has always wanted, and listen, and the worship that goes along with it, because he's always wanted to be worshipped as God. He is going to achieve that godlike status and worship during the tribulation period under the leadership of the Antichrist and false prophet. A little detour, but turn to Revelation 13. You think, you think you're living in interesting times now? I don't think we're going to see the tribulation period as believers in Christ now, the church. I think we're going to be taken before the Antichrist is revealed. But look at what the world is going to be like and the attitudes of people at that time. Think it's bad now? Then John said, Revelation 13, verse 1, Then I saw a beast, that's a reference to the Antichrist, rising up out of the sea. Often the sea is used for the nations. This guy could rise right out of the United Nations. This beast metaphorically had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns and written on each head were names that blasphemed god this beast looked like a leopard but had the feet of a bear the mouth of a lion and the dragon a reference to satan gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority i saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery but the fatal wound was healed the whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon, Satan, 
for giving the beast such power. And they also worshiped the beast, the Antichrist, and, and uh, said, who is as great as the beast who was able to fight against him? Now, if you really want to get into that, go online and listen to our Revelation study. But there is coming a time when there's going to be such an inversion. God said in Isaiah, woe unto those people who call evil good and good evil. Whenever a nation is experiencing a moral inversion, we're in the process of one right now. When you have people in New York, in the uh, New York legislature, who stand and cheer and clap their hands when Governor Cuomo signed into law the bill that allowed abortions to take place up until the moment of birth, you know we are in, almost now have completed this moral inversion where people in our culture are calling good evil and evil good. This is going to reach a crescendo during the tribulation period when people are going to think any follower of Christ is a devil worshiper and those who actually worship the devil, the dragon, they're going to be worshiping the devil as God. It's going to be a time like we've never experienced in history. The rebellious heart of man, and this is what Peter is getting to, the rebellious heart of man is quickly moving toward divine judgment. As Peter goes on to say in verse 12, But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Peter here likens the unsaved person, listen, especially false teachers who espouse rebellion against God, he likened them to natural brute beasts. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, calls the unbeliever the natural man. That's just the Bible's way of describing an unbeliever. Okay? He was just or she was just born once into the world naturally. Okay? So a physical birth, a person enters into this world with a fallen nature. It's not until they're born again, John 3 that they receive a new nature and are now uh, taken from the kingdom of darkness, children of Adam, which the curse abides upon, and judgment, and are taken now into the family of God, where there is blessing abides on them, not wrath any longer, right? But let me just say one more time, because we've talked about this in the past. When God created Adam and Eve, he made them in his own image and after his own likeness. God is a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God made man a triune being as well, having a, a soul, a body, and a spirit. Now, of course, as we have said before, God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, connected or communed with man, spirit to spirit. Man was first and foremost spirit, and then soul, consciousness, and then finally body. And man and God came together, spirit to spirit, for the purpose of communion, fellowship, and worship, and so on. When man sinned against God in the garden, God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, uh, you will surely die. He didn't die physically immediately, although he did put that sin did put into the, in process what was called the entropy loss, and in particular the second law of thermodynamics, which says now everything is wearing out, growing old, going from order to disorder, from integration to disintegration, uh, into corruption and rust and so on. That's the result of the fall. So man started to die at that moment, but what died instantly was his spirit. The spirit 
is what connected man to God. Now that the spirit was dead, his nature flipped upside down. The body was now uppermost, and the soul or the consciousness of man lived to satisfy the body appetite, just like an animal. Animals are two-dimensional creatures. They have a body and they have a consciousness. And their consciousness lives pretty much to satisfy the body's needs. Food, drink, you know, water, procreation. Animals live instinctively. Animals can't worship God. Only man has the capacity to worship God and not until his spirit is reborn. And he is once again connected to God, spirit to spirit. But Peter says that these unbelievers, primarily these um, false teachers, they are like natural brute beasts, two-dimensional creatures. When Peter said that the unsaved rebels of the world speak evil of the things they do not understand, because how could they? Again, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, and he doesn't have a spirit, the natural man. His spirit's dead. Now, that doesn't mean unbelievers can't act spiritual. It just means that they are, don't really connect with the Holy Spirit. Sure, unbelievers, there's a lot of spiritual unbelievers who get into all kinds of weird things. But we're talking about somebody who, who can connect with God through the Holy Spirit and have fellowship or communion with God. Now, Peter says these people who speak evil of things they don't understand. I believe what he has in mind primarily, since he's just talked about the word of God to end chapter 1, and I believe, and then he moves right into false prophets, false teachers, talking about the things that they say and do and how they're going to be judged. I believe that it's all connected in Peter's mind, that primarily he has in mind the ignorance of people, listen, who criticize and rail against God's truth, is the Bible. This is, for the most part, these people speak evil of things they don't understand. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is the one who, who was the author of the Word of God. Again, William MacDonald said, and I quote, Their ignorance is never more glaring than when they criticize the Bible. Because they are devoid of divine life, they are utterly unable to understand the words, the ways, and the works of God. Yet they pose as experts in the spiritual realm. A humble believer can see more on his knees than they can see on their tiptoes. They will be destroyed in the same destruction as the animals. Since they choose to live like animals, they will die like animals. Their death will not mean extinction, but they will die ingloriously and without hope, die in the lake of fire for eternity is the idea. Then Peter goes on. Well, once again, verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Their day is coming. He said in verse 3, they're going to be judged eternally someday. Verse 13, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness, again, in hell, the lake of fire, as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Let me stop there. Guys, the idea that Peter is expressing when he says that these evil teachers are going to receive the wages, in other words, the payment someday from God, uh, not a good thing, going to receive the payment for their unrighteousness, 
as those, Peter says, who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. That's just Peter's way of saying these people are so corrupt that they're not ashamed of the way they're living so as to do their sins under the cover of darkness. No, no, no. They're very bold. They're proud. Okay. In fact, we have parades called gay pride parades. These are folks that not only don't, are not ashamed of their sin, they celebrate openly their wickedness and sin. Because in their mind, it's not sin. Or maybe some of them think it is wrong by Christianity standards. That's why they hate Christianity so much. And Christians, of course. But, uh, but again, Peter is describing people that are so bold in their immorality and rebellion that they commit their sins in broad daylight. Broad daylight. And, and that's something I've seen over the years. There used to be a time when people would commit immoral acts on the cover of darkness, behind closed doors. Now you got TV shows that celebrate sex, you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't watch those programs, and if I'm mischaracterizing them, let me know. But, you know, uh, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, I mean, you've got all these women vying for this one guy, and, uh, you know, and, and, and they're going off and being intimate with this person and so It's celebrated. It's celebrated. And I could give you, tell you a number of shows that I've seen commercials for. I can't even believe it, how bad it's gotten. We as a culture don't blush at sin anymore. In fact, so many people are calling evil good that conversely they have to call good evil. So when you think, when you think that you must, and you should, stand up against those who want to kill babies even after they're born, infanticide now is being pushed, and when you do stand up and say something, so a lot of people get all over you because in their minds, you're the problem. Well, if the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground when Cain killed his righteous brother because he didn't like how Cain, Abel was living and was upset that God blessed Abel, and uh, Cain was, and eventually killed his brother because he was jealous, if the blood, and God says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground, one man's blood. What does the thunderous din of 60 million aborted babies, what kind of a noise does their blood make from the ground? And what does God hear? There's no way God can continue to look away. I mean, he's not looking away. I mean, he, everything is being noted. But he is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and so god is giving this nation time to repent but mark it down our day is coming our day is coming if we don't get right with god soon as a nation i believe some terrible things are on the horizon second peter 2 verse 13 the latter part these false teachers he says are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Peter says that these people are spots and blemishes in the church's love feast. Every week the church would have these love feasts, kind of like our potlucks, okay? And they'd all bring something to share, and then they, as a sign of unity and love, and then they would all celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, at these love feasts, okay? And, uh, and Peter is saying, you know, you have these people that are masquerading as 
godly Christians, many of them are leaders in the church, who are in these love feasts pretending to love everybody. Peter said they are spots and blemishes, two terms in the Greek that speak of filthy, defiled stains and cancerous sores on the body of Christ. Not only that, Peter says these corrupt people revel in their own deceptions. They're proud of what they believe and teach. And while they pretend to honor God at these love feasts in the churches, <laughs> they're destroying the people of God with their false and damning doctrines. Beware of false shepherds, Jesus said. Beware of those who come to you dressed in sheep's clothing. That's another way of saying a shepherd. A shepherd was able to dress in the sheep's wool. That was one of the perks of the job. You got to keep some of the, the wool to make into clothing, which kept you warm. You were outside uh, all the time, especially in the winter. And so when Jesus said, beware of those who come to you dressed in sheep's clothing, I believe he was talking about shepherds and not the sheep. And he wanted to warn us because false shepherds can do a lot more damage than single sheep because they are the ones overseeing the whole flock the sheep love them the sheep trust them and if they're teaching false doctrine the sheep often embrace it that's why peter says they're like cancerous source in the body of christ if left undealt with they're not cut out and removed they're eventually going to kill the whole flock jude says something similar he said in jude verse 12 these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear serving only themselves. These are spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Um, if people would, would stop and think about having to stand before God, I can't remember what psalm it is, but the psalmist talks about this, why these people, unbelievers, are so bold and, and, and commit such grievous sins he goes on to say, because there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't believe there's coming ever going to come a day of, of you know, where they're going to have to stand before God and give an account. If they did believe that, it would affect the way they would, they would live their life on the earth. But when people think there's no God, or nothing bad has happened to me yet, so God doesn't see, God doesn't care, or maybe even he approves. And that's the worst kind of self-deception, that God approves of my sin. So we'll stop there, guys, and uh, pick it up next week, God willing, And because uh, Peter has some more things he wants to talk about. But there's something we'll look at next week that a uh, very controversial section of Scripture, very much misunderstood about dogs returning to their own vomit and pigs after having been washed, to the mud hole. We'll look at that next time and uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit will give us illumination because it's important we understand exactly what Peter is saying in the context in which he's saying it, okay? Father, we thank you for our time in your word tonight, Lord. We ask you to, to keep blessing these uh, studies in your word as we seek, Lord, to uh, walk in your truth and not be uh, misled by any who claim to be teachers of your word and so on. Give us grace, Lord, to uh, challenge, to examine, 
to test all things and to hold fast to that which is good always. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.